We now project Hillary Clinton will get three of the four electoral votes in Maine. Maine distributes its electoral votes uh, according to congressional districts. Donald Trump will get one. As hard as this is to believe, with slim majorities for Democrats in the Senate and the House, if you count the legal votes, it is possible. I easily win. If you count the illegal votes, they can try to steal the election from us. This is no longer an election. This is like Alice in Wonderland. Hey, everyone. My name is Rodney Davis. First and foremost, thank you for listening to the Faith in Elections podcast. To start, I want to tell you a little bit about myself, also the Committee on House Administration and why we're doing this podcast series. I have the privilege of being the representative for the 13th District of Illinois. And for those unfamiliar, the 13th District of Illinois is right smack dab in the middle of our large state. I've been blessed to represent this area since 2013. Since I was seven, I've called the town of Taylorville, Illinois, my home along with my wife, Shannon, and also my daughter and two twin boys. I also have the privilege of serving as the lead Republican or the ranking member of the Committee on House Administration. I'm proud to be this lead Republican of what has become a very consequential committee over the past few years, alongside two of my good friends and colleagues, Congressman Barry Laudermilk of Georgia and Congressman Brian Stile of Wisconsin. Us three together have been out on the front lines of fighting back against Democrat attempts to take over elections to preserve their own political power, while at the same time fighting to restore this country's faith in our election system. That brings us to why we are launching the Faith in Elections podcast. There's an increasing amount of data that shows everyday Americans across all ideologies have had their faith in our election system erode over the past few years. This is a serious problem that has real implications for the future of our country and this democracy. We will talk about how elections work with people who actually run them, the overregulation of free speech through campaign finance laws, and lastly, election policy, including the proper role of the federal government, the very limited things Congress has done legislatively in this space over the course of 200 plus years and where we might go from here. Through the good, the bad, and the ugly, more people are talking about elections in this country than have in a very long time. We hope to further that public discourse by providing you with hard facts to inform your opinions. I'm excited for the guests that we have lined up to participate who collectively bring an incredible depth of experience on these issues. I hope you find these to be informative and from time to time, even thought-provoking. Welcome to the Committee on House Administration's Faith in Elections podcast. This is our inaugural episode, and we are proud to be joined by two good friends of mine and two great friends of the Committee on House Administration Republicans. First, we've got Nick Lalota. He's the chief of staff for the Suffolk County Legislature in New York and was a former Republican elections commissioner. Uh, I had a great time meeting Nick during our Faith in Elections tour that we've been doing here on the committee, and I got to learn a lot about New York's election system and compare it to my own in my home state of Illinois. And I I really, really appreciated uh, the work that, uh, you know, the work that my team was able to do with your team in the last election cycle during our, during our, uh, election observer program post 2020 election. So thanks for being here, Nick, and thanks uh, for everything you do there. Also very proud to be joined by Terry Burton. He's the director of the Board of Elections in Wood County, Ohio. Is that Toledo, Ohio? Uh, No, that would be Bowling Green, Ohio. Bowling Green, Bowling Green. 
yeah, should have checked my uh, geography a little better, but, you know, I wanted to make sure if you knew the correct answer to that like I did. So you passed, Terry. So uh, uh, Terry's a good friend of, of our, our colleague on the Committee on House Administration and a former elections official himself, Mike Cunnington. Uh, he serves as the director of the Board of Elections in Wood County, and the chair of the board is a Democrat in the way Ohio sets up their election system. So the director, like Terry, is a Republican. These are differences that I didn't understand until I got a chance to travel to both of their states uh, because Illinois runs elections differently than New York and and Ohio. But I'm excited that we're going to have a thoughtful discussion on the nuts and bolts of our country's decentralized election system. Our audience is fortunate enough to hear directly from three, from two local election administrative uh, administration officials. Um, Nick, Terry, again, welcome. Now, you know, we're going around the country with this Faith in Elections project, really hoping to shine a light on what's going right in our election systems, which I believe is, is really the best in the world. Uh, again, we're speaking with folks who actually run elections. Nick and Terry run elections on election day. There's a lot more to it than what you would imagine. Now, as I said, I spent time in New York and spent time in New York with Nick. And I also spent time in Ohio uh, during the special congressional primaries just a few months ago. And also, we're talking to a lot of folks here on Capitol Hill during this podcast. And what we found is sometimes folks don't realize the sheer amount of work involved with running an election or that we have safeguards built in throughout the entire process. So this is our, our kind of behind-the-scenes look at how an election is run from start to finish. And I knew you two would be the perfect perfect group to discuss. Uh, to begin, there are several major pieces for election administration. And when you look at what these guys and their teams have to do every single election, it starts with planning, which can begin two years out from election day. Registration, list maintenance, ballot designs, poll books, voting machine certification and testing, actual voting and counting of votes, canvassing, which is where you go in and check to make sure the process has worked as it should, that the numbers add up, that the right ballots were counted for the right areas, etc. And finally, once you're sure of the results, certification. So let's start off with discussing one of the first steps in the voting, in the voting process pre-election, registration. Unless you live in North Dakota, if you want to vote, you need to register to vote. As you all know, voter registrations require voter registration requirements, they differ from state to state. In my home state of Illinois, individuals can register by mail, online, motor voter if you go get your driver's license, or at their local election office, or with deputy registrars, as I used to be one. I don't know if I still am one. I don't know if I have, I have to get sworn in every two years or not in Illinois, but I used to be a, a very good deputy registrar when I was an elected precinct committeeman. Illinois, as I said, has automatic voter registration where an individual is automatically registered to vote when they interface with the what we call our Illinois Secretary of State driver's facilities. Everybody else considers them DMVs. And we also have same-day registration where an individual can vote and reg- can register and vote on election day. Same-day registration applicants must show two forms of ID with one showing their current address. In a recent election cycle, my campaign uh, witnessed and received reports of college students registering to vote using receipts from Jimmy John's as an acceptable 
form of ID. Now, Nick, I don't want to get into a debate on which sub shop's better, Jimmy John's or someone else, but you're from a blue state like mine in, in, in New York. Uh, does New York have same-day registration and allow voters to use receipts from fast food chains as proof of residency to vote? So fortunately, the answer to that question is no, Congressman. Uh, we, we don't accept uh, receipts from Jimmy John's. But you know what? Then again, we don't have any Jimmy John's here on Long Island. So, uh, But nor, nor do we accept uh, any sort of receipts from their competitors. So you would, though, if Jimmy John's was there, right? I, I, I can't testify to the fact that Jimmy John's <laughs> might be a great sub shop. I, uh, you'll have to show me someday. Um, but fortunately, no. Uh, we, we don't have same-day registration here, nor do we allow receipts from fast food restaurants to uh, prove one's residency. Uh, the rule in New York is one has to register 25 days before Election Day. That's been the rule for quite some time. Uh, some folks in the state legislature uh, sought fit to put it to the voters this year to try to reduce that amount of time uh, to something more like 10 or one day. Uh, and the voters this year overwhelmingly rejected that proposal. The voters, uh, and, and the, reason, the voters who were registered to vote legally and cast their votes in a recent 2021 election said that they don't want the Democrats' plans for same-day registration in New York? Absolutely. And I think it's because they understand the balance of our elections. I think we all subscribe to the fact that uh, voting should be easy, but cheating should be hard. Um, and reducing uh, the time from 25 to 10 or one days uh, would uh, open the door to some nefarious actors uh, allowing to cast ballots in our, in our process, in our system, and would handcuff some election officials um, like myself from being able to properly understand who was a valid voter and not. So uh, credit to New York's voters this year for overwhelmingly rejecting that proposal. Well, that's great. Terry, um, how does Ohio's voter registration process differ from New York's? And I want to give Nick a chance to go into to what his process has been and, and, and what it's like to register to vote in New York. But tell me about Ohio's, and then I'll ask Nick how, how New York's differs. Well, we actually have a 30-day uh, registration requirement. Um, they can... Uh, come into our office. They can do it online. They can register online if they have an Ohio driver's license or state ID. Um, but, uh, and more and more of our registrations are coming with that. But, but they also have to provide the two forms of ID when they're doing that, which is the same as when they would come in uh, in person. And those are verified back through a cross-check with the uh, Ohio Driver's License Bureau. Um, we uh, do not provide for same-day registration. Um, that is just, uh, in my opinion, as an elections official, a bad idea. Um, it, it makes for a real difficulty in planning your election day, knowing how many voters are going to come to any location and increase your cost because you have to plan for the unknown. Um, so that's something that we're certainly not in favor of and, and, and not something that Ohio has been looking at hard um, we do have a major university here with 20,000 students in our county, and we, we do not allow receipts uh, as, as any form of registration or proof on Election Day that they're who they say they are. Um, and so we're, we're very uh, used to dealing with the college population and the need that they be a uh, registered voter here in Ohio if they're going to be eligible. Wow. So I'm finding out that not only does Ohio State continue to win Big Ten championships, when it comes to football, that um, you have different registration requirements. Um, interesting. Very, very interesting. 
Hey, um, I do want to give a shout out to your secretary of state, uh, Frank LaRose. I think Frank is doing a tremendous job as a top election official in the state of Ohio. And frankly, I was with him during the special congressional primaries. And I, um, I took my Illinois driver's license out and I went to your voter ID scanning machine that was in the polling place he and I visited early in the morning just to see what it would do once I scanned my license from Illinois. And it said, invalid voter. And I was not able to cast a vote. Not that I wanted to. Didn't want to go to jail. But I did check the voter ID system just to have some fun that morning. But Frank was so gracious to explain the entire Ohio system. I went into their war room later that afternoon. And and really, the only thing I can say bad about Frank LaRose is he roots for the Browns and the Indians. But or the Guardians now, sorry. Didn't mean to be, you know, politically incorrect there and say the wrong team like the Yankees or Mets. I'm sure you guys have changed your team name soon too. Frank, you got anything to add on on uh, voter registration issues? Or Nick? Yeah, sure, no problem. Uh, well, unfortunately, while New York uh, is one of about 15 states that does not have a voter ID, we do have a fairly efficient voter registration system. Uh, and there's three different paths to to generally to, to register to vote. None of them takes more than about 60 seconds. Uh, first and foremost, we have a similar uh, DMV motor voter program where if you have uh, a driver's license, you can get on the World Wide Web from your phone, from your tablet, from your desktop, wherever, and in about 60 seconds or so to register to vote. That program is probably about 10 or 15 years old, and it works quite efficiently. Well, how, how do you um, suppress voter registration when it takes that long, 60 seconds? That's not really the business we're in. You know, that's some of the drama that some of the folks on the other side of the aisle uh, talk about. But, um, you know, here in New York and probably every other state, uh, we all want somebody to have a fair shot at registering a vote. And, uh, and I think that is uh, a bit more drama uh, than there's actual reality about voter suppression. Well, it doesn't I really exist in most places. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. And I had Frank LaRose on my mind when I reintroduced you there, Nick. So for the rest of this podcast, if I call you Frank, you need to answer and just go ahead and respond. Okay. Can you yes, do sir. that? No problem. <laughs> hey, um, I, I do want to talk about uh, absentee and, and uh, mail-in voting. As we saw in the 2020 elections, many states made temporary changes to their absentee and vote-by-mail processes under the guise of COVID-19. Uh, you know, some states mailed all voters on their registration rolls and application, and some states, they mailed live ballots themselves. So we saw deployment of unsecure ballot ballot drop boxes, an uptick in ballot harvesting, which is a process that's already been corrupted, uh, and modifications to certain requirements for requesting and accepting mail-in ballots. So to increase election integrity and really voter confidence in the process and outcomes, states like Florida and Georgia recently enacted additional safeguards, such as an ID requirement for mail voting. Terry. What safeguards does Ohio implement for mail-in votes, and has the state enacted any changes to its vote-by-mail process since the 2020 elections? Um, Ohio really hasn't done a lot of uh, election law changes right now. They've considered a few things, but um, our, our mail absentee program, we feel, is pretty tight. Uh, voters are required to submit a written application to the Board of Elections uh, by mail or in person 
for each election that they wish to vote absentee on, that application has to have their name, their address, their birth date, their state ID, or the last four digits of their social security number. It has to have a signature. And all that information is verified by our staff on each, each application before a ballot's even sent. And then when that ballot is returned, the envelope that it, that it comes in has all that same information that once again is verified a second time by our staff to make sure that that is the voter uh, that, that uh, it was issued to. And if for any reason any of that information is missing or we feel that it, it, uh, a signature doesn't look like what we have on file, then we reach out uh, to that voter directly uh, to confirm that that is their ballot and that they voted it. Uh, so we, we make sure that all that information is checked twice here in Ohio before a ballot's cast. Checking once and checking twice to make it fair and make sure every legal voter has a chance to cast their ballot. You know, and along those lines, I, I, I just it's amazing to, to see some of my colleagues out here on the other side of the aisle uh, talk about how there's this this rampant voter suppression going around that somehow, you know, it's election administrators like you guys that are that are not allowing people to vote. And yet over the last three years, we'd have hearing after hearing. The Democrats couldn't get any one individual, not one person. They couldn't even get somebody to come in and lie about it. They couldn't produce one individual who could say in a hearing under oath that they tried to vote and were unable to do so because of the, the because of some voter suppression systems in states like New York or Ohio or Illinois or anywhere. So it just shows you it just shows you that some times the unfair attacks on what you all do in a bipartisan way, mind you, to ensure that everybody has a chance to vote. Um, it's all politics and it's all politically based. But we've seen a lot of attacks on on uh, things like the efficacy and the security of voting machines. Uh, we've heard the rumors about voting machines being hacked from some central server in Venezuela. I mean, I guess I would probably believe that a little more if it wasn't a country like Venezuela, probably with worse broadband service than our most effective dial-up internet at, at the time when it was created. Um, so you guys have to do a lot to educate your voters on the security and efficacy of the voting machines that you use. Now, Nick, tell us how you do that. So good, Congressman, there's probably two best ways that we accomplish uh, security in our voting machines. And the first one is a simple one that everybody kind of understands. We don't connect with the Internet, not via a hardwire, not via Wi-Fi. We simply do not connect our voting machines to the Internet, and that prevents them from being accessed remotely or otherwise by non-elections folks. And how do the, Venezuel how do the Venezuelans hack into them? Uh, they can try, uh, but they're not going to get them here in Suffolk County or elsewhere in New York. <laughs> um, and the second thing, which is really the backbone of New York's election system, at least for now, some folks are trying to change this, and I hope it doesn't go through, but New York is one of the, the minority of states whose elections boards are staffed by bipartisan teams. Uh, quite literally, in every county, each of the 62 counties in New York, there's one Republican commissioner and there's one Democrat commissioner. And it takes two commissioners or two members of our staffs to do every step of the process in the voting process, whether that's voter registration, issuing an absentee ballot, programming a machine, counting a vote, or certifying election. All throughout the process, members of both parties are checking and double-checking each other to make sure that nobody has their thumb on the scale to ensure that every valid vote counts and voters can have confidence in our elections. 
Well, you, you bring up the bipartisan aspect of, of New York's election administration. Uh, that's not the same in my home state of Illinois. And I found that out when I visited you, Nick, uh, and, and talked with your team and, and talked with the Democrats who work in the same election administration offices. Um, Terry, uh, I, I know Ohio has uh, a very bipartisan election administration process, too. So much so, you know, why don't you tell the listeners about, you know, what processes you have to go through? And I know it's just not on the primary election day that I was a part of or, or leading up to that. It happens all the time, just like Nick was saying in New York. Give us a little rundown of the bipartisan, the bipartisan administration you have in Ohio. Yeah, we, we like to call ourselves the Noah's Ark office because we do everything two by two. Um, it's, uh, it's one of those things that was uh, impressed upon me from when I first took this job. Uh, our board that we uh, answer to at the county level is two Republicans and two Democrats. They make all our uh, administrative decisions. Um, and then for day-to-day operations, there's a Republican and a Democratic uh, director. Um, and then our staff is, is exactly equal down the line. And uh, we know that we have a job to do. Um, much like, you know, uh, Nick said, and we were talking about earlier, our job is to count votes. Our job is to get people registered. And so we're, we're very interested in doing that. And so we, you know, we leave our politics at the door and we work together to get the job done and go through, you know, all the physical and cybersecurity requirements to make sure that no one else gets in to do anything else. Well, and I witnessed that. I witnessed that in, in uh, Cleveland and also in Columbus uh, on that uh, leading up to that primary election day and and on that primary election day. So it's, it's interesting to see how those processes differ in states like yours versus states like mine. Now, you know, we've already determined and I'm sure yours are the same in, in Ohio. Your voting machines are never hooked up to the Internet. Um, and uh, as a matter of fact, uh, to be able to purchase those voting machines, they have to meet a certain set of guidelines uh, before the EAC will issue their stamp of approval, right? Yeah, the, we have to uh, have them both federally and state certified. And then we go through, uh, you know, we hire local elections officials, Republicans and Democrats, to come into our office before every election and go through every machine that's going to be deployed for an election. And we go through a test process of uh, sample uh, vote pattern and make sure that, that the, those uh, folks manually vote each one of those machines. We upload it. We check the totals on the machines. We check the totals on our tabulators. And we go through a whole process to ensure before those uh, machines ever get put out into the field that they function correctly and they function in the way that we anticipate uh, which is recording the votes that the voters put on them. And once again, that's done in a bipartisan manner. We clear them all off. We seal them up for Election Day. And the whole process through the delivery to the polls is always in a bipartisan manner. I love hearing that. Now, Nick, uh, you know, I know you guys test your machines there from my tour with you. And, you know, it's a pretty similar process to what Terry was talking about. But you also use other equipment when administering an election, like poll books, e-poll books in, in many cases. Um, one thing I found out during my time as a ranking member on House administration is that the electronic poll books that are non-voting machines, non-ballot casting machines, don't go through the same set of rigorous standards for certification from the Fed, Federal uh, Election Assistance Commission or, as, as Terry mentioned, state election officials. Um, do you think we might need to do something to better protect uh, those types of electronic systems when it comes to election administration? 
Well, I would say that uh, New York or Suffolk County would welcome, um, you know, any experts' uh, help, uh, guidance, monies in that. Uh, but I would probably stop um, at submitting myself to mandates or requirements from a federal government who may not know all the nuances of my county or my state's election. So uh, I hate to be hedge, hedge on that answer. I hate to be political on that answer, but um, the, the help, the money is surely welcome. Um, but oftentimes when we you know, get policies out of Washington or Albany, uh, they come with requirements that don't quite fit. They want to be in square pegs and round holes. Um, so I would stop at, at that point where um, you know, a one-size-fits-all system coming out of Washington probably wouldn't work here on Long Island. Well, that's that's great to hear. Um, that's that's why we've led the fight against Democrats' attempts to nationalize what you both do, which is run your elections. Um, the heavy hand of Washington uh, sometimes doesn't make the best decision, and, and I appreciate your response there, Nick. Um, I, I think we all agree that not all problems are solved by throwing money at them, but this is one of those ones that might be better solved with some more, more funds. Right now, most states, uh, and, and certainly most counties in this state, offer their poll workers about $15 per hour uh, to work. And what happens is, and these are temporary workers who work for the boards of elections just one to four days per year. And what happens is the federal government issues a W-2 form or requires us, the employer, to issue a W-2 form to any individual who works such that they uh, earn $600 or more. If we can get a federal solution on that and a waiver from the requirement that um, a taxable document be issued to that individual, we would see many of our poll workers work more than just the two days for us per year. They would work three, four, and five um, days for us per year, and that would help um, solve some of our uh, manpower issues here. Well, Nick, um, we listened to you when we were up there. And we've got a bill that's looking to solve that problem for poll workers, and hopefully we can get some bipartisan consensus on that. Let's uh, let's turn to voting at the polls. The number of states that offer the voters the opportunity to vote early in person has dramatically increased over the years. Forty-four states currently offer in-person early voting, and you know it's 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 essentially turned election day into election season. Uh, I have taken advantage of voting early in in my particular uh, home state of Illinois. And, you know, it becomes a convenience factor for many, regardless of party. And and, and that's great. Um, but, Nick, New York has early in-person voting, correct? Yes, we have nine days of early voting here in New York. What safeguards do you have in place to prevent fraud? So unlike our voting machines, our poll roster books are indeed connected to the Internet and share information with each other throughout our county to ensure that once a voter checks in at one polling place, they're barred from checking in at another polling place. That prevents the double voting that we all uh, want to ensure does not happen in our system. So if you vote on day one of early voting, you're locked out from voting anywhere else in early voting or on election day. And if you submit an absentee ballot, that ballot won't count. Well, you, you already mentioned New York does not require voter ID, right? Unfortunately, we do not. Uh, even though it's got the support of about 80% of all Americans, including uh, an a overwhelming majority of African Americans so and minorities. Uh, it's, it's amazing that uh, you know, the Democrats don't listen to polling when it doesn't agree with them. Now, New York City is allowing non-citizens to vote in local elections. What additional measures 
should city election administrators take to ensure that non-citizens are not, to make sure that non-citizens will not be permitted to vote in federal elections? You know, Congressman, this is a very scary uh, thing that's going on here in New York, allowing non-citizens to vote in New York City elections. And I wish I had a clear and concise answer for how to separate those city voters from the rest of our roles. But many skeptics, including myself, um, are worried that the state roles are going to be contaminated with these non-citizen voters uh, who then could participate in our federal and other elections uh, where uh, laws provide that they probably should, that they should not. Um, you know, it, it's a tough one, and this is why so many people are against it. Um, and New York City has a tough task on hand for uh, the elections officials there, have a tough, tough task ahead to ensure that those non-citizen voters um, don't get integrated into uh, non-city elections. So when a, a ballot comes back to our office, um, a staff member uh, takes it to one of our workstations. Um, we bring up that voter's information. We verify the voter's name. We verify that it is the voting address that we have them on file for, their birth date, their state ID, or their last four digits, their Social Security number, and that the signature matches uh, the record that we have on file. And we go through that process and, and ensure that all that matches. And once again, if it doesn't, we reach out and, and you know, to the voter directly. And uh, if they, you know, are able to, you know, fill in the holes in that, then they can do so. But we, we verify that uh, just with the voter. Okay. Uh, in 2020, we saw some states processing domestic absentee and mail-in ballots after Election Day, um, a la New York, right, Nick? Yeah, unfortunately, we saw, you know, a number of issues with the absentee process in New York. You know, forever and a day, uh, absentee ballots were limited to uh, those who were in the hospital, those who are in military duty, those who were traveling outside their counties. And members of both parties for uh, forever and a day agreed that we ought to, as a state, limit the amount of paper ballots that are in the system because uh, they are almost by definition less reliable than the in-person uh, machine ballots cast, even in the state that doesn't require voter ID. And uh, we seem to be going down a slippery slope and, um, and, and unfortunately eroding some of the um, trust that we have in our in our process and i hope that that reverses itself well we're hoping to do that through these podcasts uh, um terry would there be an increase in voter confidence if the processing not counting of absentee or mail-in ballots began prior to the close of polls yeah actually here in ohio uh, we're allowed to start processing those those paper ballots 10 days up to 10 days before the election and we, we do so. We're not allowed to tabulate. We're not allowed to produce any results where, where we know how people have voted, but we're able to get them into our uh, system. So uh, by election day, the only thing we are processing is what comes in in the mail or in person that day. And so that really has given us um, the advantage of being able to have an unofficial count on election night that, that is as valid as it possibly can be. Um, there's always going to be, uh, because of, you know, military votes and overseas votes and, and what we call provisional in Ohio, where somebody moves within the state and then we have to verify their former address before we can count their ballot. But we want as many votes 
in the system by that unofficial count as possible so it we don't get variations because people don't understand the difference between the election night counts and then the the official counts that happen later well as somebody who has won two very close elections for congress i appreciate systems that actually um that actually can give us answers on election night uh some states can some states can't yeah we had one of my colleagues who was with me at orientation uh, by 30,000 plus votes uh, the week after the election. And then a month and a half later, she ended up being declared a victor by less than 200 votes. So that was in New York. So it's a different processing system there in New York versus Ohio versus Illinois. But let's get to post-election. You know, we've done pre-election, we've done election administration, uh, early absentee and election day, talking about machines, talking about the efficacy of poll books. And you just mentioned Terry results. Uh, we want the American people to be confident that our results on election night, even though unofficial, are as accurate as they can be. And we all know, because we're in this business, that we see results reported on TV and by our election offices on election night. We know they're unofficial. Uh, Brett Bayer's Fox News alert doesn't mean your teams are done counting, right? Correct. Um, what, how the uh, media works is they pick uh, random precincts throughout the state, and they, they have determined by their own scientific method that these rep are representative of the overall vote totals, and they extrapolate out uh, one precinct in my county uh, to determine what they think the results are going to be. And that is not necessarily the best methodology, as we found uh, in, in the last couple of federal elections. Well, interesting you say that. I, uh, I remember taking a call from the then Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan, on election night, uh, offering his condolences because he saw on CNN that they called my race for my opponent. And that was right about the time where I knew I was going to win based upon the results that were coming in. So uh, I'm, I'm a living, breathing example of how those networks you just mentioned use processes that may not add up correctly. So I was glad I was on this end uh, when they corrected it. And, and uh, when you, you look at the next step, okay, so you've got your unofficial results. Now, Nick, uh, the next step in the post-election process, it's the canvas uh, where election results are compiled to authenticate the vote count and to ensure all ballots were correctly counted, right? In addition, your state requires a post-election audit. So you got a lot of checks, right? Uh, you want to make any comments on that? Sure. And again, uh, New York system is strong because it relies on the bipartisan nature of it. Um, and the audit process uses the bipartisan team's and a different set of technology, essentially to rescan a uh, small number of small sample size of the ballots cast to ensure that the machines on election day, election day scan the right result, meaning the most accurate result. And uh, the state law requires us to um, do an audit automatically on at least three percent of our machines at random. So yep. we'll take a number of machines in Suffolk County. It's probably about 50 to 100 per election. Um, and then we'll use a different technology to rescan the ballots in those machines. And if it's off by one vote, the law requires us then to um, check 10 percent uh, of the machines. And if there is more errors, we check 25 and then we'll have to check them all ultimately. Um, 
but we've been able to build confidence in our elections by ensuring that we tell voters in the press that we're doing this absolutely in a bipartisan process that's open to the view of the public. The press can come in and take a look. Our doors are open. Um, and then it's always done by a bipartisan team. And that's built a lot of trust and confidence in our lo- local electorate. Uh, Terry, do you guys audit election equipment and the election procedures or both there in Ohio? Uh, we, we audit both. Um, you know, we go through a very similar process uh, that, that Nick described. Um, but we also go through and audit um, how our poll workers uh, followed procedures, um, how, you know, uh, our uh, machines came back um, or our results came back to the uh office here uh, for tabulation, making sure that our processes are as locked down as our machines. And, uh, you know, certainly it's important to realize that by the time we get to the end of an election, we have counted on on an unofficial election night. We've counted again for the canvas process for the official 21 days later. And then we've counted a third time uh, with the audit process. And so we are constantly going through the process over and over to make sure that the results are the same every time. Well, this has been fascinating to talk to both of you, and especially for an election geek like me. And those who who want to listen to this podcast are really going to understand the bipartisanship that exists within our election administration systems uh, throughout this, this country. And you two are very representative of what's going right with our election systems. So throughout this conversation, I think I've gotten one thing that one message that's consistent. And tell me if I'm wrong, that if Congress is asked to do anything, I mean, I know we had some suggestions, some funding for poll workers, changes to the W-2. But overall, based on our conversations, I would say that you guys would both both agree with me that Congress's best approach is to stay the hell out of the way so you can run your elections, right? Yes, absolutely, Congressman, and, and, and credit to folks like yourselves who have actually gotten into counties and states other than their own to actually figure out what our process is. I think if more members educated themselves, uh, they would understand why we do what we do uh, and wouldn't want to try to push one-size-fits-all mandates upon us. Well, it's been a privilege to talk to both of you. And, and look, two of my, my best friends in Congress uh, are, are folks who, who represent your great states. And as much as I wonder how the voters sent them here, uh, like uh, Congressman Garbarino and Congressman Joyce in Ohio, um, I, I have faith that the voters did actually vote for these two, did actually send them here to Washington because they're two of my good friends and they're doing a great job representing your home states too. But I really appreciate both of you taking the time today. I've learned a lot. Uh, continue to learn about how we can restore faith in elections. That's why we have this Faith in Elections podcast. That's why we'll continue to visit election administrators like Nick and Terry throughout the next few years, because we are going to make sure every American has faith in the American election system. Thank you both for being on today. Appreciate the time.